According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We have arrived this morning at Jeremiah chapter 29. Many of us have been looking for chapter 29 since we started this uh, book study. I've been looking for 31 since we started this book study, but that's still two weeks away. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans that I have for you. And it gets quoted a lot, and it gets used a lot, and it shows up on a lot of refrigerator magnets and other knickknacks that we have, and it's claimed as a promise for a church-age saint. And, and it's unfortunate because it's not a church-age promise, and this text is not designed for the body of Christ. Um, I'll, I'll describe that as we move forward. I, I'm, I'm not criticizing the verse. I love the verse. It's a great verse. But I want to be able to teach it appropriately and live it correctly. And when we do make an adaptation of the Old Testament for a New Testament um, application, we can clearly do that. But when we do that, we want to make sure that we do so appropriately, biblically, and in the marvelous way that uh, the Scripture does it. All right, Because the plans that he has for us are, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so much higher than the plans that he has for Israel. All right, and the promises and the future and the hope and all of the expectation of a conclusion to their 70-year captivity, uh, honestly, that pales compared to what we have to look forward to in the conclusion of our earthly sojourn as we have this treasure in earthen vessels and we are looking forward to, uh, to the heavenly places, the eternal weight of glory uh, that makes this present uh, time not worthy to be compared. So Jeremiah chapter 29 These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. And so this is after the 597 deportation. Remember, they got t- taken away in three waves. 605 with Daniel and his three friends. Not really a deportation as much as it is hostage taking. All right? And so hostages are taken. And then in 597, when you would think that the hostages should be killed by now, um, there is a, a wave of, of uh, more hostages, more captives, if you will, including craftsmen and smiths people that would repair the walls in, in the event of a future siege. Okay, The reason why you take those people out of, out of the place. So we have 605, we have 597, and then ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. These are the three waves that we kind of want to keep in our thinking as we work our way through. The dating of this chapter is after the 597 captivity during that period of time, probably shortly thereafter that period of time uh, uh, while they are in captivity, and they communicate by letter. He sends a letter, all right, which is extraordinary given what modern liberals tell you, how the Jews were illiterate until they came back from Babylon, that they didn't even learn how to write until they came back from Babylon. All of that, of course, is just fantasy, 
They were very literate. And the correspondence from Jerusalem to Babylon, I think, is vital in understanding um, canonicity and understanding Old Testament canonicity and how they accepted Scripture for what it was, how they sifted through the false teachers and the true teachers, the false prophets and the real prophets. Uh, Letters like this. We're going to see three letters here in this chapter. All right. So I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get going with letters one, two, and three between now and the end of the hour. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness. And Father, so overwhelmed. It's, uh, it's a perspective you give us in your word. It's a perspective you give us in our hymns. It's a perspective you give us in our prayers. As Father, we reflect upon the glories of your grace, the power of your love. And, and Father, it's just uh, overwhelming to consider that we are the objects of that unconditional, eternal, sacrificial love. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and call upon your faithfulness again this hour to take the living and abiding Word of God and make it real for each one of us. Open the eyes of our understanding. Father, make it clear to each one of us what we need to live, what we need to learn. Work in these things, Father, and feed our souls. We do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 29 centers on three letters that passed between Jerusalem and Babylon. There is an initial letter that we find in the early verses. There is a reply that comes back. It is not a happy reply. It is, uh, it is angry. It is in rejection of God's will. And it is also uh, duplicitous, all right, in the sense that there are public copies to be read, and then there's a very private copy that's going to uh, an officer in the, in the temple uh, asking for Jeremiah to be arrested. And uh, so we'll talk about that as well. And then there's the reply. Jeremiah gives a rebuttal. He gives a response to the reply. And so the third letter that comes is actually returning back to Babylon to call out the... Uh, the critic to call out the false prophet that had uh, attempted to uh, order Jeremiah's arrest. And so we can spell them out for you like this. There's Jeremiah's letter from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 23. And this will be a useful exercise for us as well to read the contents, to consider hermeneutically, how do we interpret this? How do we accept this? When we ask the who, what, where, when, why, and how questions, and we ask, well, a letter from Jerusalem to captives, does that apply to us? Is he writing to us? Does it apply to American Christians in the 21st century? What do we get out of this letter? Or do we just ignore it, rip it out of our Bibles and pretend it's not there? See, no, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but we have to be very clear on to whom it was intended, why was it given, what's the application, and where is our connection, say, or do we even have one? Do we even have a connection? And if so, how? How do we have a connection to this letter? And and this is no different, by the way, than what we do all the time, because I've noticed, I've, I've been pastoring for nearly 21 years now, and not once has any member of my church ever built an ark. They've never assembled all the gopher wood, and they've never built an ark. They've never gathered animals. They've never put animals on an ark. Not once has that happened. Because clearly, believers with training that read the scriptures appropriately, they observe that the command to build an ark was given to Noah. And it was applicable in Noah's day and age. And it was his assignment. It was in anticipation of the coming global flood. 
And so it's just kind of ludicrous, ridiculous for somebody to build an ark today, unless you're doing a, a replica thing for a museum purpose, and then I, then I kind of get it. That, that can be useful. But nobody is doing it in obedience to the commands of Genesis chapter 6. And that's the point. No one brought a goat this morning. We're not going to butcher an animal. We're going to eat a lot of dead animals in the, in, the, in the potluck dinner afterwards. But we're not here to ritually slaughter a goat or a sheep or a bull or, or wring the neck of a bird. All right? We're not in the Old Testament sacrificial system, which I'm thankful for, for many reasons. All right? uh, and, the, and the blood and the mess is a, really a small part of it. I'm thankful for the reality that we have in Christ for the church age that we operate in, for the holy of holies that I go into all day, every day. Because in the Old Testament times, there was only one guy one day a year that could go in there. All right, And so these, these uh, lessons become important. So Jeremiah sends a letter from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon. And that's what we're going to tackle in the first 23 verses. It might be what I spend the bulk of my time on here this morning. The response comes back from a rascal here by the name of Shemaiah. All right, Shemaiah. And his letter comes back from Babylon, and specifically he's giving instructions to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah. And we'll read about that in verses 24 through 28, which is basically, why are you letting Jeremiah get away with this? <laughs> All right, stop him already. Are you not the officer in charge of the stocks? Use the stocks. Put them in the stocks. Right? Remember what, what happened in chapter 20. Jeremiah was placed in those stocks and publicly put to uh, ridicule for that it was a 24-hour period of time in chapter 20. Well, uh, Shemaiah wants him back in the stocks and uh, throw away the key, <laughs> okay? Just uh, get him out of, out of ministry altogether. So we'll deal with that. And then Jeremiah's reply, really Yahweh's reply, uh, but Jeremiah's reply to Shemaiah, and it's similar to how we saw uh, the chapter end last week. You might recall last week when the false prophet Hananiah was rebuked, uh, Hananiah, that is, Hananiah died the sin unto death at the end of, ch- of, of chapter 28. And so uh, we have a reply, a very similar reply that's uh, being sent to uh, Shemaiah in that regard. Also, by the way, if you use the Logos Bible software, I just found some neat new features including uh, an infographic, including a, uh, if this will come up, there it is. Um, they got these little utility things, and I think these are useful. Um, this is a, uh, a utility, uh, an infographic, if you will, for every proper name of this chapter that's mentioned in this chapter, and it kind of charts out who they are and where they are, helps you kind of keep them straight. Um, this is just a, an image that I put on the slide, but if you're actually using the software utility itself, then every single one of those little people on that slide becomes clickable, and you can open up a Bible dictionary, you can, op- you can go to different verses of the Bible where those people appear, and you can help to, uh, to keep them together. And so uh, we talk about the author of the letter being Jeremiah, we talk about the couriers, uh, Eliezer and Gamariah. And uh, those guys, right? Eliasa is the son of Shaphan. We'll read him shortly. And Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah. We're going to read him shortly. And some of these names overlap. And some of these names, we go, well, wait a minute. I thought the high priest's name was Hilkiah. Wait a minute. I thought Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah. All right? And so it's useful for us to keep these people straight. And the little uh, utilities that help you do that, uh, I've found to be greatly uh, invaluable. Uh, Zedekiah, different Zedekiah than the, uh, is the king, the king who's dispatching these messengers. Uh, the false prophets that are going to be warned in the midst of the first letter, they're going to be called out by name in letter number one, and they're going to be uh, rebuked, including somebody else named Zedekiah, by the way. 
and a fellow named Ahab. Uh, Shemaiah is the false prophet who sends his own letters. We'll talk about him as well this hour. Uh, Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, not the prophet, not, not the minor prophet who wrote the book of Zephaniah, but another one. And then finally, Jehoiada, who doesn't even appear in the chapter, but his name is mentioned in the chapter in passing. It's mentioned as a, as a flashback. It's mentioned in a threat. Okay, And uh, we'll talk about that as well. Threats only work if you understand the, the nature of the person that's being referenced in the, in the threat. Okay, so um, anyway, we have that. That's kind of fun. Let's take a look at letter number one. Because it forms a marvelous template for aliens and strangers living in a land that is not their own. As we read these instructions, what's happening here? Jeremiah is telling the exiles how to live as exiles, how to be a pilgrim, how to be an alien and a stranger, how to live in a land that's not your own. And we find that we have, as a concept, we have a parallel with you and I today. Because I don't know about you. Well, yeah, I do know about you. This world is not my home. And this world is not your home either, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. That we are strangers, we are aliens, that we are, and we ought to live that way. And the New Testament admonishes us to live that way. And so on the basis of the New Testament admonishing us to live as aliens and strangers, we can go back to a passage like this where there are instructions given for how to live as aliens and strangers. Does that make sense? And so our application is going to be a secondary application simply because the analogy is is evident. It is clearly analogous. It is an analogy. As they're living aliens and strangers in Babylon, we're living as aliens and strangers on planet Earth, okay? In the United States or whatever country we're from or where we're going, wherever we are, while we're on planet Earth, we're citizens of heaven. And so we are aliens and we are strangers here in the church age. And this ought to be clear as well. One caveat I'll say, it's not the only passage that tells us how to live as aliens and strangers. We have larger, we have other passages, in particular 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which talks about marriage, it talks about divorce, it talks about children, it talks about um, not getting married. It talks about the present time of difficulty and how it may be advisable to not get married and ministries that single people can have in, in their unmarried state in view of the present distress, we're told, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So um, perhaps uh, somebody remind me Wednesday morning we can explore this a little bit more in our ministry training when we use talk about hermeneutics and how do we adapt passages to apply in the church age. Well, yeah, we can adapt Jeremiah, but we also want to include the New Testament scriptures that, that apply directly, including uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. All right, so let's look at it. Um, verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, well, he's a hero, um, and Gamaria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So King Zedekiah is sending a message to Nebuchadnezzar. And as long as the couriers are going that way anyway, let's, uh, let's give them some extra letters to carry, Right? Like when, when folks find out that I'm going to Ukraine in April, there will be a lot of things to carry to people in Ukraine in April. And, and I don't mind doing it, all right, because the, the plane ticket's already bought and I've got bags and 
I can carry stuff, and I do every time. And, and that's what happens here, all right? Because remember, there's no, there's no email, there's no text messages. If, if, if a letter's going to get there, someone's got to walk, and that's how it's going to get there, okay? By some kind of foot, human, donkey, camel, something. This, this feet are going to take this letter to, uh, to Babylon. And so um, just passing over for now, but I've got, got some real heroes there in verse 3. Shaphan was a scribe when, the, when in Josiah's day they find the Torah in the, in, the te- in the temple and they lead a great revival. Shaphan leads that revival. And, and uh, Hilkiah, the high priest. We've got some other characters here we know. And now we're seeing their sons and their grandsons that are starting to have ministry. You might recall it was a grandson that stepped up and, and saved uh, Jeremiah from being executed uh, in, in the last couple of chapters. Well, I'm going to have to pass by that here this morning. But uh, anyway, here's the letter now that Jeremiah is sending. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so who did that? Did Nebuchadnezzar do that? God says, I did that. All right, don't be confused. Don't be all distracted and don't be boohooing your circumstances and saying, oh, woe is us. Look what that meanie Nebuchadnezzar did. God said, no, I did. I did that. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. Nebuchadnezzar is my shepherd. Nebuchadnezzar is my tool. But it's my hand at work here. I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And what's an what's exile? I mean, just you don't have to learn Hebrew. I mean, what's, an exile is an exile. An exile is somebody who can't live where he wants to, who can't live in the land of his birth, who can't live where he belongs. He's now in a place where for a season, for a time, until an open door allows him to go back, right? That's an exile. They're not immigrants. They're exiles. They're not becoming Babylonians. They're Jews in Babylon as exiles, who are waiting for the opportunity to come back. And they've got false prophets telling them they're going to come back in the next couple of weeks. They're going to come back within two years. They're going to come back in a very short order. And Jeremiah says, no. Those false prophets are lying to you. It's a satanic lie. Don't be distracted. You're going to be there for 70 years. It's going to be your children and grandchildren that are coming back. Very few of, of the, the, the people will, will you know, be small kids when they're taken captive and they themselves come back in 70 years. The bulk of the returnees were born there. Okay. So thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Do not decrease. A lot of circumstances in which populations voluntarily decrease, and, and they're not good reasons. All right, demographically, when a nation does not re- reproduce itself. Then, verse 7 Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. But this is a wicked place. These guys don't know the Lord. They're idol worshipers, they're serving uh, false gods. Pray for them anyway. Pray for them, witness to them, preach to them. A lot of them are going to get saved while you're there. Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to get saved while Daniel is there serving in his court. 
pray to the Lord on its behalf. We saw last hour First uh, Timothy telling us to pray for kings and all who are in authority. I mean, these passages are huge, nine days out from an election. We, we need to be praying for our city, our state, our nation, all right, for our assignment. This is our blessing to do so. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. In its welfare you will have welfare. If its job market is great, guess what? You benefit. This flock benefits when when Austin is prosperous. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. It is a personal visitation from Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord God of Israel. And he comes and he does visit. And he visits in the uh, manifestation, in the person of his shepherd. His shepherd Cyrus comes and destroys Babylon and frees Israel and, and orders their return. But it is a direct visitation of Yahweh to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And that's the verse that gets snippeted out and, and replicated and, and, and so forth. And, and, and so I'm not mocking that. I'm just saying we want to put this in its right context and understand that God's plans for us are not to bring us back to Jerusalem after a 70-year captivity in Babylon. All right? And if you happen to have bought a house, and if you have happened to planted a garden, and if you have happened to have married a woman, that great good for you, but you are not obeying the commands of Jeremiah 29, all right? Our application on this is going to be secondary, and it's going to be by analogy. And as such, then, we're going to have some boundaries, we're going to have some limitations, we're going to have some, uh, some, some context by which we may... Uh, not apply everything or some things we'll have to apply in a certain way and other times we're going to look and say well now wait a minute we got some additional criteria that are unique in the church age that weren't at all features of of the sixth century bc we want to be clear on that as well in particular first corinthians chapter seven you know there may be reasons why you don't give your daughter in marriage there may be reasons why and you have not sinned if you have done that and made that choice you have not sinned, all right? It's, uh, it's a matter for our convictions before the Lord in the nations and generations and times in which we live. All right, so we have a pattern. It's a template. You know what a template is? Like a, a Microsoft Word template, which I find mostly use, useless, but I've used occasionally. I need to write a business letter, so I go get a template, and okay, here's something, follow this. Um, and so there's a pattern, there's a template. And, and based on that template, then, we can change the, change the details. I don't want to send it from the, the dummy address they send, or the dummy whatever. I want to put my address in there. I want to put my name in there, and I want to make it pertinent to me, to my circumstances, okay? And uh, that's the template. And we're going to use Jeremiah 29 as a template, but we're going to put our own name in there. We're going to put the church age in there. We're going to draw the appropriate application for us in the body of Christ, starting with the fact 
from verse 4, your circumstances are in God's control and according to God's plan. Your circumstances are in God's control and according to God's plan. We need to identify that all day, every day, where I am. And that includes where I am in blessing and where I am in cursing, where I am as a consequence of previous poor decisions, where I am under the gracious hand of God and merciful hand of God's discipline. But where I am is where he's put me. See, not where Nebuchadnezzar's put me, not where my bad decisions have put me, all right? And maybe I got a long string of bad decisions, and I might be in a very bad place. And, and it's useful, of course, to be honest with yourself and say, hey, I'm reaping what I've sown. I'm, I'm now in this place, and I'm dealing with these consequences. But at the same time, I'm in the loving arms of Jesus Christ, and everything he's directed and everything he's permitted and everything that he's designed, including this Babylonian captivity, so to speak, is where I need to be. And sometimes it's not an easy thing. I, I make very clear, I, I, I tell God and men and angels alike and anyone else who wants to listen, when I got my orders to Texas, I was in the United States Army and I received orders. After living in Germany for two years, I get my PCS orders on April Fool's Day of all things, of 1990, that said, you're going to Texas. And I read those orders, and I stared at them, and I stared at them, and I was so disappointed. I, was, I can't tell you how disappointed I was. And I tried to change my orders. I tried everything, and I didn't have much time, because I only had, you're supposed to get your orders you know, several months out. I got my orders two days out. I had to clear post in two days. I had to be gone by April 3rd. So how do you change your orders in that length of time? say. But I tried. In between Washington State and Texas, I attempted to sign in at a chemical weapons dump in California. Okay? There's a, there's a military installation outside of Susanville, California, and it houses chemical and biological weapons. And, and typically, typically, they are so desperate for staffing, they'll take anyone who wants to be there. Okay, my buddy Johnny Valancourt got ordered there, and I said, hey, I can, I can hang out with Johnny for a year and a half. So I tried to sign in, and, the, and I tried to request that if the captain would overwrite my orders and accept me in his unit, then those other orders for Texas could be canceled. I got turned down. <laughs> Do you know how it hurts your self-esteem when a chemical weapons dump turns you down? But see, Sharon was waiting for me here in Texas. I didn't know that. Ralph Braun was waiting for me here in Texas. I didn't know that. My gift of pastor teacher needed to get trained, and it wasn't going to be trained at a chemical weapons dump. All right? And so when you learn to accept the fact that your circumstances are in God's control and according to God's plan, then wherever you are, if he's put you there, he has put you there, is there anything that is out of his control? Is there anything when it's God up there in heaven saying, man, I wish they weren't there. What am I going to do now? He has sovereign control from Alpha to Omega in everything that happens. And we can rejoice in that. Also, verse 5. Houses and gardens. What are we dealing with here in houses and gardens? You say, well, I don't have a house. I live in an apartment. Am I, am I a sinner? <laughs> or I, uh, 
I don't have a garden. I've got a lot of weeds that used to be called a garden. I mean, what's the principle of this passage? Well, what we're reflecting here is a multi-year economic model. What we're reflecting here is long-term activity. A house is a significant investment. It's a significant purchase. And, and, and planting, I mean, that's, that's long-term. And we're talking multiple seasons, multiple years. We're, there's there's a, a, a principle that's at work here in verse 5. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Now this becomes huge because you and I are living with a daily imminent expectation of the rapture, are we not? The rapture of the church could happen today. It could happen right now. Okay, it didn't happen. So it could happen right now. Okay, well, but see, here's the point. Think about a, a poor attitude whereby living under the principle of imminency, you deliberately just choose to not live anywhere. You deliberately choose to not buy a house or not live anywhere or, or, or own anything or work or do anything, and you're just on a mountaintop waiting for the trumpet to sound. You're going to get cold and you're going to get hungry and you're going to get tired of doing that when the Lord doesn't come. Okay? Because He can come, but He may not. As we saw last hour in the Kairos, He will come in the Kairos. His Kairos, not ours. So we have a reflection here of a multi-year economic model. So if you have a retirement savings, if you have uh, uh, you know, investments, if you have all of these, these things are not sinful. And preparing a heritage for your children and your grandchildren and so forth, leaving a, a, a legacy for your local church, uh, any, anything that's done on that basis is not to be ashamed of. It is not wrong. And, you know, if the trumpet does sound, well, then the unbelievers can figure out what they're going to do with it for the next seven years. All right? I'm not, I'm not going to sweat it. Whatever the unbelievers want to do with my house or they want to do with this church or whatever, they, they couldn't care less at that point. All right? But we, we should have a multi-year economic model. And this goes well with Proverbs and look to the ant and other things related to biblical economics. And then there's marriage. Marrying and giving in marriage. I mean, circumstances that will be characteristic of the end times. And yet it is characteristic of daily life, normal life, family life. Marrying and giving in marriage reflect a multi-generational perspective for families, clans, and tribes. For families, clans, and tribes. Now, we lose some of that in, uh, in our culture. Our nation is not a tribal nation, although I'm wondering more and more in some respects. All right. But the, uh, the, uh, the nature of, of uh, our nation, as founded and as operating for the last 200 plus years, is such that I don't need permission to move from Washington to Texas. I just need orders from the Pentagon. I don't need um, permission to marry Sharon Schneider. I don't have to run that past the clan chiefs or the tribal elders. All right because of where we are and, and the nature of things. There's still places in the world where that happens. There's a lot of countries in the world where that happens. And, and I, part of me is kind of 
liking that. All right. I want to pick a worthy man for, for my daughters because I haven't found one yet, but I want to keep looking. Okay. Um, what am I saying? Marriage and giving in marriage, multi-generations. All right. This is part of the part of the uh, the reality that that while we we are citizens of heaven, yes, but we still live here on earth. We still have normal secular life here on earth. The laws of divine establishment still apply for volition, marriage, family, and nations. And we want to be able to operate in those realms as well as operating in the heavenly places in Christ. See, we don't stop being human. You know, there's no male or female in Christ, but guess what? We're still male and female biologically. And we get married and we have children and this is, this is the design. Also note the design is population increase, not population decrease. And, and much of uh, Christendom today is losing in this regard. Christianity is decreasing on a demographic basis. And uh, other parts of the world are increasing. All right. Then it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. We get involved in politics. We engage in and we support local and political, local, notice, political and business interests. The term welfare here, we're talking about the business dealings and the political dealings. Engage in and support. It says, seek it. Seek it. Don't just pray about it. We'll start there, obviously. But then also, seek it. Pursue it. Achieve it. Get involved. The, the, the stronger we make our nation, the stronger we make our state, the stronger we make our community... Who benefits? Okay? I tell you, I've been to places on mission travels and whatnot. I wouldn't want to live there. I'm happy to, I'm happy to go. And I love the brothers and the sisters and the, the gospel that gets preached and, and meeting folks. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm, I'm thankful for every mission trip I've ever taken. But I'm also thankful for every return flight that has brought me back home again. All right? And so in its welfare, you will have your welfare. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned this. I gave the opening invocation at the city council meeting. Got to meet the mayor and the city council members and stood there in the chambers as they opened up their, their meeting. And they were very respectful. They were very patient. They stood there the whole time. And, and um, I was wondering if I, if I would have kept going and going and going. Would, you know, could I take all day doing that? Would they eventually kick me out? I don't know. But they, um, they listened, and I prayed. And right before I was introduced, they were the, kind of the last order of business before they introduced me was they were thanking, they were welcoming the new city manager, the interim city manager, and they were thanking uh, the, the, the former city manager that had been there for some time and giving him all the credit for the great things that were happening in the city of Austin. Under Ott, his name was Ott, and his, under his management, man, Austin did so well. And they resisted the recession for the longest time and they came out of the recession earlier than a lot of cities and, and just things are thriving and Austin has really done well in recent years when a lot of the country has struggled in recent years. And all glory to Ott, okay? 
And that was right before my prayer, which I found kind of amusing because I wanted to give all glory to God. And what I really wanted to stand up and say, you're welcome, because Austin Bible Church is a lampstand where brothers and sisters are disciples in the Word of God, growing in the Word of God as a salt and light, blessing by association impact. You want to know why Texas is doing well? You know how many doctrinal pastors are in Texas? Do you know why Austin is doing well? Do we know, do we understand the dynamic when believers that are in the Word of God will benefit their city, their state, and their nation? All right. And so we have the principle here. And so we should be praying. And we should be doing more than praying. We should be seeking. And so we should be pursuing. And we should be involved. We want to be part of the solution. We don't want to be part of the problem in what truly blesses, on a secular basis now, what blesses a society. We also want to disregard the satanic counter-messaging because for every person that stands up and speaks the truth about what will bless a culture, there's going to be a whole crowd of people standing up and saying just the opposite. And, And they'll be saying some of the craziest things. They'll be saying things that are so at odds with Scripture. We know what the Word of God says. We know how family life promotes the the rearing of children. We know that a father and a mother together in a marriage is, is, is ideal for the nurturing of children. And then there's a counter message that says, eh, not so much. It's all right. These are the things they can do too. All right. And we get a counter message straight from the pit of hell that contradicts what the scripture says related to everything. Touching on economics, touching on politics, touching on, on, on crime, touching on family, touching on everything imaginable. And that side can address all these things. If we try to address all these things, they say, oh, you shut up and keep your faith to yourself. Okay? Scripture doesn't let us do that. Scripture is commanding that we are engaged in all of these applications. And if they're allowed to pursue their religion, I'm going to pursue mine. Okay? My relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they, theirs is ideological. It is a religion. Secular humanism is a faith religion, uh, religious system. And we get that. And so when they say this, don't listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. See, I want to ask, well, why are they their prophets? Why are they their diviners? Why weren't they fired a long time ago? Why are they still in office? Why do they still have influence? Why did Adam let the serpent in the garden in the first place? He was told to keep the garden, to guard it. And so it's interesting. I, we got a lot to answer for. Christians have a lot to answer for. Why, why, is the, why is the satanic viewpoint so dominant in our schools? Why is the satanic viewpoint so dominant in our media? Why are we not more engaged? All right, so disregard it. There'll be a follow-up here as well in verses 15 through 23. 
kind of as a follow-up to uh, verses 8 and 9. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, for thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your brothers who did not go with you in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm sending upon them the sword, the famine, the pestilence. I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. That sounds nasty. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence. I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. See, this is what Yahweh is saying is going to happen. Their false prophets weren't saying any of this. Their false prophets were saying that they're going back to join the, 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 the people of blessing that are still in Jerusalem. And God says, no, those aren't the people of blessing. You guys are the people of blessing. You're the remnant that I rescued to get out of Jerusalem before the judgment falls. So don't listen to those guys. Disregard the satanic counter-messaging. Finally, a people with eternal promises can always depend on God's faithfulness to execute His eternal plan. A people with eternal promises. That's Israel, of course, in the Old Testament. They are an earthly people with eternal earthly promises. It's also the church. We are an eternal people with eternal heavenly promises. But a people with eternal promises can always depend on God's faithfulness to execute His eternal plan. Hey, when do eternal promises expire? Do they, right? When does your eternal life expire? Trick question. Eternal means eternal. It doesn't expire. And so an eternal promise, can it be replaced? Can it be changed? Can it be scrapped? God has not ever broken an eternal promise, nor can He. Israel has a future and a hope. We have a future and a hope. While they're waiting to see their hope, we already stand in our hope. We've been introduced by grace into this hope in which we stand. This is our blessing. This is our future and our hope. This is what we're looking forward to. And so verses 10 through 14, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon. Now they can mark it down. They could get their calendars out. They, they could pinpoint it. We can't. There is no verse like this for the rapture of the church. There is no promise that says the rapture of the church is going to happen on Sunday, October 30th. All right? Not in Scripture. And people that write books and tell you it's in Scripture, they're lying to you and they're sadly misguided, including a good friend of mine. Breaks my heart. He's all wrapped up into dating dates and writing books. Okay? And it just... Oh, I can't tell you what, how it hurts. I think he's on his fourth edition now because he's missed that many dates, gotten wrong. Okay? And I just... Mm. What are we doing here in the body of Christ? There's 70 years, all right? It's in Scripture. God said it. I get it. And I don't have to look for a code. I don't have to find something hidden. There it is. I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. All right, well... Where are we going? Are we going to Jerusalem? When the Lord comes for us, where is He taking us? Not Jerusalem. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you to myself. That where I am, that's heaven, folks. That's seated at the Father's right hand. That's not Jerusalem. That where I am, there you may be also. 
We meet him in the air because that's on the way to heaven. That's not on the way to Jerusalem. All right? We're not going to pop up and pop back down in Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans, plural, by the way. Israel is a uh, confederation. Israel is a tribal nation. And there are plans for every tribe. And all the tribes collectively, there's a plan for the collective nation of Israel. Church, though, is one body. One body in Christ. Not to be divided. Indivisible. Okay? There's no partial rapture. There's no partial wedding. One bride, indivisible. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And, and it might be that in verse 11, the biggest thrust of that passage is the I know. Why don't you? Right? I know the plans I have for you. Why have you lost sight of it? Why have you lost track of the Word of God? Why, ha- why are you not oriented to the Alpha to Omega overview of Scripture? It says you're able to discern the, the weather, but you don't know the signs of the times. Jesus was rebuking His generation. Red sky at night, red sky in the morning. He says, you got all this weather stuff figured out. You can't discern the signs of the times, Jesus said. I know the plans I have for you. Do you know? Do you know the plan of God? Do you know the dispensational plan? Do you know his will for your life? If you don't, you're a fool. So scripture says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm not calling you names. Ephesians 5 is calling you names. If you don't know the will of God, Ephesians 5 says, you're a fool. Because a people with eternal promises can always depend on God's faithfulness. All right. Now we get a follow-up letter, a response. And in verses 24 through 28, this rascal, Shephaniah here, or Shemaiah, Shemaiah, Shemaiah the Nehelamite, whoever he was, whatever he was. You want to know why we don't know? We are clueless as to what a Nehelamite is. And anyone tells you they know what a Nehelamite is, is lying to you because this passage says we don't know and can't know. But God knows. So here's the reply. And again, we're talking weeks to get there. We're not talking instant messaging. We're not talking, why didn't you answer my text? All right. Feet carried the letter to Babylon and feet are carrying the letter back. And it's going to take weeks. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have sent letters in your own name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the the priest, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest to be the overseer in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and in the iron collar. That's why you're there and and, and you had one job to do and you're not doing it. This madman needs to be in the stocks and you're not doing it. Now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth who prophesies to you? For he sent to us in Babylon saying, and here is the, everything we just got done studying in that letter, you want to know what he got out of it? (laughs) Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. (laughs) Wow, way to summarize a letter. 
and, and of all the things to get mad about. So it's a response to the letter that Jeremiah wrote. Why put him under arrest? Why is he not under arrest yet? Why is he still walking free? You put we got we put you. I mean, we, okay, the Lord put you, but that's just religious talk. We put you in that spot, and you know what happened to Jehoiada, right? It could happen to you too, pal. <laughs> All right, you want to be like Jehoiada? It's a threat. Okay, it's a threat. Be like if uh, oh, I'm going to get political. Let me stop. All right. But, you know, it'd be like inviting somebody for a nice walk in Fort Marcy Park or something, okay? Where Vince Foster was found dead. Not that I promote any conspiracy theories or anything. I'm just avoiding that park. Because you know what happened to Jehoiada? Why is this man not in the stocks yet? Well, there are 26 Shemayas in the Old Testament, but this one is otherwise unknown. We don't even know what a Nehelamite is. Probably somebody from a village. Probably the village was called something like Nehel or Nehelam or something of that nature. But we don't know any villages named that, and we're not entirely clear what it's about. Because of that, there's a lot of guesses about, well, maybe he's maybe it refers to his occupation or maybe it refers to something else. Nobody knows. The reason why is because God writes him out of human history right here. Shemaiah evidently wrote two letters, one publicly read to all the people and another privately intended for the number two priest in Jerusalem, this fellow here named Zephaniah, son of Messiah. And what's sad about Zephaniah, I think Zephaniah has some things going for him. I think Zephaniah provides a blessing. He shows Jeremiah this, this letter. Zephaniah says, hey, Jeremiah, look what I got. I'm supposed to put you in the stocks. Okay. As we spot here, uh, verse 29, Zephaniah the priest read this letter to Jeremiah the prophet. He reads it to him. He says, look at this, Jeremiah, I'm supposed to arrest you. Here's your arrest warrant. And Jeremiah says, okay, thanks for reading that to me. And then he writes the reply back to Shemaiah. Sadly, when we get to chapter 52, we're going to see him get killed. He, he dies in the, in the victory of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, they overthrow Jerusalem. A lot of people are taken captive, and they're brought before the, the general, and they're executed. And uh, Zephaniah here will be one of the men executed in chapter 52. Rather than put Jeremiah in the stocks, Zephaniah shows him the letter from Shemaiah. Zephaniah shows him the letter from Shemaiah. You know, and it's like your sergeant who comes to you and says, I have an arrest warrant for you. I have orders that you're to be confined to the barracks. And he shows them to you. And you read it. And then he rips it up. And he says, have a nice weekend. All right? fun story, but I'm running out of time. The, uh, rather than putting him in the stocks, which happened back in chapter 20, by the way, there was another officer there. In fact, it was a guy before Jehoiada that was doing it there in chapter 20. You wonder, what's the turnover like in this job? They seem to be going through these positions pretty quickly. And then the conclusion. Jeremiah's reply to Shemaiah, verses 29 through 32, emphasizes the severe accountability spiritual leaders have when they cause little ones to stumble. When you lead people astray, when you teach false doctrine to a flock, when you trip up a child, when you offer false hope to a captive, 
to an exile. See, what we should be doing is highlighting the faithfulness of God and encouraging others to believe in the truth of God's promises. That's what we should be doing. And so in such a way, we magnify our Lord who is faithful and true. But if we promote a false, uh, if we promote a bad kind of faith, see, they believed a lie. They applied faith, but it was faith in a lie. And that's, that's horrible. Promoting a faith misapplication and defiance of the Lord is a matter for severe judgment. Verse 31 here, as well as last week, we saw it in chapter 28, uh, Jesus preaches on this in Luke 17, causing one of these little ones to stumble. Put a millstone around your neck and be cast into the sea. Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, though I didn't send him, and he has made you trust in a lie. He has made you trust in a lie. Man. That is severe. That is severe. And I want to stop right there. I want to, I want to preach for six weeks on that phrase right there. <laughs> okay. What do we do here in the church age? What do we do in a local church? What does a pastor do? You realize I don't make you believe anything. I teach, I exhort, I also tell you to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. You're going to believe what you believe as the Holy Spirit places you under conviction of the truth. The spirit of truth is going to lead you into a conviction of the truth, and you're not going to believe it because I'm making you believe anything. I don't want to make you believe anything. Okay? John Eichmann told me this years ago. He said, because if I talk you, and here's how he put it, he says, if I talk you into something, and then somebody smarter than me will come along later and talk you out of it. Talk you into something else. All right? He says, no. He says, our role, our role is to teach the truth. Let the Holy Spirit convict. When belief happens, belief happens because that believer priest has been convicted of the truth of the word of God. They've been persuaded. And patho precedes pastuo. So you're persuaded and you place your faith. Don't force anybody to believe anything. Last week, that was part of the sin and the death. Remember that for Hananiah in 28.15? Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Making somebody believe something because I said so. Oh, please. You know, making somebody believe something because of whatever. I want you to believe. I want you to believe the truth, but I want you to believe it because the Spirit's leading you in that, persuading you in that. And search the Scriptures. If I'm wrong, then believe the truth and tell me I'm wrong. Shemaiah and the Nehelamite clan will disappear from recorded history during the Babylonian captivity. He said, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his descendants. You want to know why we don't know who the Nehelamites are? There aren't any more Nehelamites. He will not have anyone living among this people. Nehelamites are being removed from their clan, from their tribe, whichever tribe it might have been. You will not have anyone living among this people and will not see the good that I'm about to do to my people, declares the Lord. You know, there are a people who will not see the heaven you and I will see. 
There's goodness on the way, but who's going to see it? We're going to see it. Because he has preached rebellion against the Lord. You know, when people disappear from history, they disappear from history. And if there's a, a gaggle of remnant left, what is that? I think that's a merciful opportunity that the Lord supplies for the gaggle of the remnant that's left to be humbled before the Lord and get saved. Different applications there. All right. Out of time. Goodness. Remind me, perhaps, in a question and answer time, what did I mean by a gaggle of a remnant of a people that might be left alive? Because I can get taken the wrong way. (laughs) And yet the Scripture addresses that. The Scripture addresses when a clan and a tribe and a people are no longer a nation. How does a people identify when they've lost their borders and they've lost their language and they've lost their culture? And they still insist on identifying with themselves as a people, but they are a lost people. What then? Does the scripture address that? It does. All right. So we want to be clear on that as well. The Nehelamites are gone, whoever they were. Shemaiah is gone. And uh, something to be mindful of. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Jeremiah. I thank you for what we're about to get into, Father. Because the promise spoken of here is uh, is going to get unfolded. And we've got some chapters coming up that are consolation. In fact, sometimes this stretch of the book is called Jeremiah's Book of Consolation. And in these coming chapters, we're going to learn about a new covenant. We're going to learn about eternal promises. We're going to learn about Messiah, the branch. We're going to learn about the glorious future that the Jewish people have. And I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of, of all of these things and, and encouraged, Father, as we uh, consider the direction our nation is headed. Father, give us, uh, give us Jeremiah's, give us Bible communicators that aren't afraid to, to uh, speak the truth, even if they go to jail because of it. Father, be faithful. I thank you also on this day, Father. It's uh, uh, our potluck Sunday, and we've got a feast in front of us. We've feasted already in uh, spiritual matters, and we're about to feast in earthly food as well. So, Father, we uh, sanctify that food as well to our body's nourishment blessing uh, our time of of fellowship and in all things father you continue to use today to glorify your son and i thank you in jesus christ most precious and holy name amen